the Lest We Forget podcast, a historical podcast by Tenement Yard Media. I'm Gabrielle, your host for this episode. Before we take a look at the specific incident of this episode, the time Bob Marley nearly kicked down the manager, here's a very brief background on Bob Marley. Bob Marley was born Robert Nesta Marley, February 6, 1945, in Nine Miles, St. Jamaica. He was born to a white English father, Norval Marley, and a black Jamaican mother, Sidella Booker. At 12 years old, he moved to Trenchtown in the parish of St. Andrew. Soon after, he would leave school and end up creating music with his childhood friend, Neville Livingston, who would soon become known as Bonnie Whaler. Around 1959, both men would end up being mentored by legendary musician Joe Higgs, where at one of Higgs's lessons, they met another young man, Winston McIntosh, who would become known as Peter Tosh. By 1963, Marley, Bonnie Whaler and Tosh would link up Beverly Kelso to form the music group The Whalers. So the three-man and one-woman band was formed. Soon after, Junior Brathwaite and Cherry Smith would join the group and they began recording in the legendary Studio One, where in 1964, they scored their Scott chart-topping hit, Simmer Down. By 1966, Marley married the Cuban-born Rita Anderson and moved to Delaware in the United States for work. While there, he took jobs as a lab assistant and as a forklift operator in the Chrysler plant factory. Yet Marley was soon back in Jamaica to pursue his music career. In 1969, Marley, Peter Tosh and Bonnie Whaler embraced Rastafari, which had a huge influence on the group's music and their gravitation to this new Jamaican reggae. Reggae music developed on the Jamaican scene in 1968, which according to Jake Homiak in his article, Black History in Roots Reggae Music, the music became distinctive by its combination of snare drum and hi-hat pulse of ska, the swaying guitar and bass interplay of rock steady, along with the continuing influence of mento and the Nyabingi drumming tradition. Reggae rhythms, with their emphasis on the downbeat on two and four, evolved from the signature one-drop style mastered by Carlton Barrett. Carlton Barrett would go on to become a drummer for Marley by the 1970s. The Whalers met up with a talented producer, Lee Scratch Perry, to produce a string of hits in the late 1960s and early 1970s. This includes Soul Rebel, Doppy Conqueror, 400 Years and Small Axe. This string of success would put the group on the radar of an English businessman who signed the group to his label, Island Records. The group would release their first album on the label, Catch a Fire, which was followed up by Burning. By 1974, both Peter Tosh and Bonnie Whaler left the Whalers to pursue their own solo careers. And so Bob Marley and his label would form a new group. This new group, which was formed, was called Bob Marley and the Whalers, and it consisted of three women backup singers called the I-Trees. I-Trees was made up of Judy Mowat, Marcia Griffiths, and Marley's wife, Rita Marley. 
By October 1974, Bob Marley and the Whalers released Natty Dread, which in 2003 was ranked 181 on Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Rastaman Vibration was released in April 1976 and the album debuted at number 8 on the Billboard 200 albums and number 15 on the UK albums charts. The result was Marley's only top 10 album and held Bob Marley and the Wailers only Billboard Top 100 songs charting single Roots Rock Reggae which peaked at number 51. By the mid-1970s, Marley was undoubtedly the biggest superstar in Jamaica. At this time, the artist lived at 56 Hope Road in St. Andrew, which also housed his recording studio, Tough Gang. However, this popularity would have had its dark side. Jamaica was going through a turbulent 1970s, which saw political violence spread out over the island. In 1976, an island-wide state of emergency was enacted as political gangs mobilized across the island. It seems that the country was coming to a crossroad of its political identity as the ruling People's National Party PNP government adopted a more leftist approach to policies than any other administration up to this point. Marley would try to bring peace to the island by organizing a Smile Jamaica concert for December 5th. However, when the ruling party declared that the general election would be 10 days after this concert, Marley found himself wedged between the political conflict on the island. Then on December 3, gunmen would blast their way through 56 Hope Road. In the aftermath of this assassination on the reggae star's life, Marley, his wife Rita, and manager Don Taylor were injured in the attack. Despite the shooting and his injuries, Marley showed up and performed at the Small Jamaica concert. Immediately after, he went into a self-imposed exile from Jamaica and relocated to England. While in England, Bob Marley and the Whalers released Exodus. Issued in June of 1977, Exodus peaked at number 20 on the Billboard 200 chart as well as remaining in the UK charts for 56 consecutive weeks, where it peaked at number 8. In 1999, Time magazine named Exodus the best album of the 20th century. In 2003, the album was ranked number 169 on Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. In March 1978, Bob Marley and the Whalers released the album Kaya. Also in 1978, Marley would make his return to Jamaica to perform at the April 22, 1978 One Love Concert. As political crime and violence further plagued the island and brought society to its heel, the concert sought to bring peace between the political supporters on the island. During Marley's performance, he would call Prime Minister Michael Manley and opposition leader Edward Siaga on stage, who awkwardly joined hands over Marley's head in a symbolic union. This, however, did nothing to quell the nation's unrest, and political violence continued to rock the island for the rest of the decade. Yet, Marley continued his stardom, and by October 1979, when he released Survival, 
He was undoubtedly one of the most recognizable musicians in the world. He not only had millions of fans, but engaged in numerous relationships despite still being married to his wife, Rita. Marley's former lawyer, Diane Jobson, in the documentary, Marley, would say this on Marley's fidelity. To whom? God? To Jack? Yes, he was faithful. To any one woman? No. So in 1979, when Marley met Pascaline Bongo, daughter of the then president of Gabon, Omar Bongo, they embarked on an affair. According to Ms. Bongo in the 2012 documentary Marley, the first time Bob Marley saw her, he said, Gosh, you're ugly, in response to her hair being straightened at the time. Still in the midst of this relationship, she asked him to come to Gabon to perform. Marley agreed and would be joined with another reggae musician and notable actor, Jimmy Cliff. It's here in January of 1980 that our story begins. Now, Bob Marley's manager and promoter at this time was Don Taylor. Born in Kingston in 1943, Taylor immigrated to the United States in the 1960s where he joined the U.S. military. When he was discharged in 1967, he became the road manager for Little Anthony, the Imperials, and Motown artist Martha Reeves. In 1974, when the Whalers opened for Marvin Gaye during a benefit concert for the Trenchtown Sports Complex, it was there Marley would come in contact with Don Taylor. Taylor was the one who organized the concert and suggested Gaye to be the headlining act. Marley would be impressed with Taylor's work and would keep in touch. Almost a year later, when Marley was in need of a new road manager, Don Taylor was called for the job. Over the next few years, Don assisted in taking Marley's career to new heights, a highlight of which included renegotiating Marley's contract with Island Records. As I mentioned earlier, when Marley got shot in 1976, Taylor was also wounded in the incident where a bullet that was lodged in his spine had to be removed in Miami. Still, Taylor continued to manage Marley. In 1979, he purchased the publishing rights of Jimmy Cliff with the intention of propelling his career. When both men arrived in Gabon to perform, Taylor was right there alongside them. In the African nation, Bob Marley and the Whalers arrived on January 4, 1980 they were scheduled to perform two shows. The first one, however, was a bit of a disappointment for the band as their performance was at a private birthday party for the country's president, Omar Bongo, and not a public showing for the other citizens of the country. Nevertheless, before the second concert could take place, as indicated by the title of this episode, a conflict arose between Bob Marley and Don Taylor. It is alleged that Don Taylor informed Bob Marley that this concert deal was $40,000. However, it seems that Taylor made the deal for $60,000 and pocketed the $20,000 difference. When Marley was made aware of this, this was when the beating occurred. A beating which saw the reggae superstar beat his manager for an alleged three hours. The three-hour ordeal was reportedly recorded by Neville Garrick, 
famous Jamaican photographer and graphic artist who is credited with designing many of Marley's album covers. Diane Jobson, who was also present during this altercation, stated that during this ordeal, Taylor confessed to having been skimming money through Marley's concerts and advances for years. During the 1987 trial of Cayman's Music Incorporated versus the estate of Bob Marley, Taylor stated that, quote, We had a situation where the promoter, we got to Africa. I dealt with this promoter who gave me deposits on two artists, Bob Marley and Jimmy Cliff, and my office gave him separate receipts. When we got to Africa, the promoter came here. He said he wanted to cancel the Jimmy Cliff show. He would like his money back. I said, you're crazy. He find a way to tell Bob Marley that the money he gave me for Jimmy Cliff was really for Bob Marley, and I was trying to take that money for myself. Bob Marley is the kind of person who don't believe people, so he believed the guy, and he jumped up and started hitting me in front of the... That was in Gabon, Africa, Intercontinental Hotel. That was our physical thing. That was the start of it in 1980. Taylor stated the start of it for after Gabon, according to Taylor's testimony, he was beaten once more by Marley in Miami. Alan Skill Cole, one of Jamaica's most celebrated football players and a friend of Marley's, testified after Taylor. Skill Cole stated that Taylor got shaken up, beaten up. Nevertheless, according to Timothy White in his book Catch a Fire, during these 1980 events, Bob Marley found that legally Don Taylor, besides himself, was the only authorized person of Bob Marley music, media aids, and the Tough Gang label. After leaving Gabon in January, Marley returned to the African continent months later when he was invited to perform at Rufaro Stadium in Harare on April 17 and 18 in 1980 to commemorate Zimbabwe's independence. His performance of his song Zimbabwe of the 1979 album Survival was one of the show's major highlights. And Don Taylor, well, he was fired by Marley but would continue to manage Jimmy Cliff and would also manage Gregory Isaacs years later. He died in 1999. Still, the events between Marley and his ex-manager would serve as inspiration for Marley's next album, Uprising. One song on it, Bad Card, is believed to be aimed at Don Taylor. According to Timothy White, quote, the lyric ruminated on the intimate propaganda one cunning man can constantly feed a trusting companion until the elaborate nonsense becomes part of the environment the listener inhabits. But inevitably, the moment of truth, the slip up in the game, comes as the high stakes con man deals himself one ace too many. The bad card is revealed in the hand he shows. End quote. Uprising was the 12th album that Bob Marley would be a part of and the final one released during his lifetime. Almost a year after Uprising was released on May 11, 1981, Marley succumbed to cancer at the age of 36. He was given a state funeral by the Jamaican government on the 21st of May where he was buried in his birth town of Nine Miles. His casket contained his red Gibson Les Paul guitar, a Bible opened at Psalm 23, and a stalk of ganja placed there by Rita herself. Even in death and despite the events of 1980, 
Mali's music and influence can be heard and seen worldwide, where his albums continue to top musical charts today. Known as the king of reggae and serving as a popular figure of Rastafari, numerous projects have been made about his life, where at the time of this episode's recording, the Paramount Pictures biopic about Marley is currently in development. For in the opening words of Bad Card, Marley himself sings, Ya got tired for Simephius, can't get me out of the race. And with that, we call an end to today's episode. To view the sources used in this episode and our recommendations to learn more about this topic, visit our website at tenementyardmedia.com. A transcript of this episode will be available five days after it has been posted to podcast outlets. We'd love to hear from you. Follow our social media pages at tenementyard underscore on Instagram and Twitter to view additional postings on this episode as well as updates on other content created by Tenement Yard Media. We're also open to conversation about this and other episodes and really all happenings around Caribbean history and culture. And just a quick note before we leave, we're over on Patreon at patreon.com slash tenementyardmedia if you'd like to support the show with a monthly donation of as little as $1. You can also make a donation of your choice at tenementyardmedia.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Gabrielle, and this has been Lest We Forget, a historical podcast from Tenement Yard Media.